Hey, amigo. Good morning, David, or afternoon, or good day. Whatever time of day it is our listeners are listening, it is that time of day. Exactly. Welcome back to Cinephils, everybody, and we're continue to working. We continue to work on the technical issues so that the sound quality improves. And Rob uh, is trying something new today. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, hopefully uh, it will work out. I'm basically got a microphone hooked up to my phone, and it's a it's a whole thing at this end. But at some at, at some point, we're just going to annex a radio station, I think, and uh, yeah. take over their their equipment so we can get this done right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I gather you guys, you were traveling to somewhere near where I actually grew up. Is that, am I correct? I saw pictures of a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. Uh, yeah, that was um, actually my wife, Charlene. I, I stayed at home for the weekend, but she went out to uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, and with, slowly uh, I turned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yep. Niagara Falls is a, a a wonderful city, a beautiful city, but a little cold this time of year, I gather. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh not too terribly cold, but as far as winters go in Canada, it's a uh, it's a bit on the chilly side. But uh, we got about I guess uh, four foot uh, drifts. Ouch! Uh, oh man! Yeah. Okay. Uh, snow. Yeah. Well, I'm in Texas. I just went north from Mexico, and um, uh, I'm settled in for the semester. And looking forward to carrying on our uh, weekly tradition, if we can make it weekly. Um, but um, you know, we'll see what we can do. This week, we're talking about uh, contempt, um, and my French is terrible. Is le mépris? Is that correct? That sounds good enough to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and that is a, a film that. Um, I suggested uh, because uh, one of the stars appears in the film uh, that we had talked about before it. And uh, we're going to see if we can continue this tradition of connecting each film to another in some, some way. Um, and uh, Rob, I know this is one of your favorites. So um, I thought we'd start off by talking about some of the philosophical aspects of this film. Uh, and then do the other uh, uh, bits in, you know, random order. Oh, okay. Sure. That sounds great to me. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. So, it, yeah. so uh, I, you know, I, I, you know, and I, you, you and I have uh, come from different philosophical traditions, but um, I've been learning more about um, sort of the, the neck of the woods you, you hang out in. Um, and, I noticed some really interesting things about the way this film was put together uh, that raised some philosophical issues. And I want you to correct me because I'm probably wrong. Um, it seems to me that um, Godard is deconstructing the film itself in the process of editing it. So it, it's not, um, the, you know, the narrative form is more or less traditional, but he does some weird things um, that sort of take it apart as a film, sort of lay it bare as what it is. Um, and I thought that was, you know, an interesting way to examine the, the underlying um, narrative, such as it is about this marriage that is on the brink. Yeah. Uh, past the... Yeah. I mean, well, maybe it is. Yeah. It, seems, yeah. it seems like it's failed. And, and then, of course, it failed in a rather final way at the end. Yeah. But yeah. am I am I off base here? No, not at all. Uh, this was a. Uh, I agree. Uh, this was Godard's thirteenth uh, film. Uh, it was, uh, and I think it is a film about film uh, yeah. itself. It's a cinema. Well, like the thesis of the film is like in that prologue where it's like Andre Bazan once said, "Cinema shows us a world that fits our desires. Contempt is a story of that world." So it's like contempt. Is, the film is a film about movies, um, and the whole uh, diegetic plot of uh, Camille and Paul's uh, imploding or dissolving marriage, I think, is really secondary to uh, the primary plot of. This is a film about film making. Okay. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that you're right. So this is a, a sort of metaphor about what's gone wrong with cinema. Do you think that's the case? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I think so. Like, um, I guess a, a bit of a this movie was loosely adapted from uh, Moravia's novel, uh, Contempt, but yep, it was written in Italian about 10 years before. And uh, when Godard gets his hands on it, this is statements in this film about how cinema is wrong or how contemporary cinema destroys culture. Uh, there's that moment uh, early on in well, mid in the first act where uh, Jack Palance's character uh, Prokash. Yeah, Polkash is uh, talking about um, well, Lang just says it's about culture and then Polkash uh, says yeah, it's when I hear that, I pull out my checkbook and then Lang comes <laughs> back and says, well, the Nazis used to just use the word revolver. Right. Uh, and like, of course, one thing, Lang is Godard's icon. I think Lang is Godard's voice in this movie. Okay. Uh, and I think that the criticism in here is, look at, Cinema under cinema, cinema is a capitalist art form and it is contrary to all, all that we would call higher art. It is contrary to certainly what Plato defined as higher art. It is destroying that, it is it is diminishing the human potential? It is, uh, yeah. So, I think in some ways, Godard in this movie is really trying to attack the whole notion of mainstream film, which is like, to me, very, very interesting because in like, this was Godard's 13th film and it was his most like critics universally basically say that it is his most accessible film. It's his most commercial. Surely. I mean, yeah, he shoots it on CinemaScope and, you know, brilliant color with, uh, all of you know with Hollywood stars yeah left right and uh, yeah and like you know who was originally like the producers uh, originally were think were trying to get uh, uh, Sophia Loren and Mastrioni for right. this and yeah. then they they turned it down and then uh, Bar- they got Bardot and uh, Goddard was fine with that uh, but like they were this was a producer the producers had a heavy hand in this, uh, the casting. And then uh, Godard turns around and really deconstructs and critis- deconstructs cinema and really criticizes uh, commercial filmmaking, uh, yeah. big budget films. And I think that's brilliant. So <laughs> I, I kept thinking of the Elvis Costello song, Radio Radio, where, mm-hmm. you know, he's writing... Uh, you know, biting the hand that feeds him, as because this was, you know, this was produced with money from from big producers, and uh, it was a he had been, you know, he had made a name enough for himself that he could do that, and then he turns around and sort of, you know, weighs it in their face. Um, and and I think you know this a it's a there's a real challenge when you're trying to um, criticize an art form from outside which is what he started doing right in his life. I mean, he was originally a film critic. Yes. Um, You're taken in a very different way from the film community than if you are a a filmmaker uh, criticizing the art form from inside, which is also, you know, Wells did the same thing later in his uh, career, but of course he, he was pushed outside um, by that point. So I think there's a, it's, it's an interesting and daring way to make a statement about the art form and about the culture that succeeds i think quite well in this case um but you know you have to you have to be aware that that's what's going on and there's all sorts of clues that he leaves along the way yes and yeah i also really like not only is he criticizing or examining cinema he's taking some direct like direct shots at the cinematic movement, which had immediately come before him, uh, like tell me about that. What? Well, Godard was essentially 
the French New Wave. And before the French New Wave, there was Italian neorealism, which which would be something that we should talk about at some point. But like, you know, like from the very first introduction to uh, Palance's, uh, Jack Palance's character, he's saying Italian cinema is basically dead. Mm-hmm. And what is he, what Italian cinema is he talking about? He's talking about Italian neorealism, okay. which, which used, as you know, uh, non-actors, right. essentially. And uh, it was... So it was almost it was the beginning in some strange ways of cinema verite but it's like non-actors telling what it was in some cases uh, a narrative but in other cases was documentary like i'm thinking of antonioni's uh yeah work and then so good guitar's like yeah well okay give me your star then Bar- bridget Man, we're still and having that issue with the audio. Saying, no, I'm, give me the biggest stars to yeah. movie, and then I'm going to use exactly the cinematic movement which explicitly came before the French New Wave. Uh, that's one thing. Another thing Godard was really, is really subtle. He was critiquing this horrible tendency of Italian cinema to overdub uh, the language. And you, you get that with with um, Georgia Mall's character essentially translating everything yeah. for the first yeah. act of the movie. And it's like, we are going to do anything but overdub. <laughs> we're, go- we're going to give this to you twice in right. multiple languages. And uh, I think that was like, really really interesting and also it's worth pointing out that italian neorealism was shot in mainly in black and white uh on poor film stock because Mm -hmm. there wasn't much left after the nazis in world war ii and uh i'm going to use the brightest colors imaginable um (laughs) you know like and like you it's worth pointing out that at this time, like what was Godard's movies before this? They were mainly in black and white, like right. Petite Soldat and yeah, Breathless, yeah. you know, Band of Outsiders. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. So he is really doing something explicit here, critiquing yeah. uh, Italian neorealism, and I thought that was perhaps his criticism. Of- okay. Like his critical aspect. Another thing, um, Godard did say in a movie, in an interview, uh, it's after like about contempt, uh, how he really respects critics uh, because they are honest. He said, right. "You'll never find this interview." I forget who he. Uh, he said, "Look, you're never going to find an inauthentic uh, critic. Uh, they are the most honest people." Like what say is another thing but they are honest in they're saying it interestingly enough that is one of the reasons that the care that camille cites as to why she hates paul later on in the dissolution of the marriage sequence where she's like you lie to me one more time and i'm going to divorce you Uh, and uh i think that was uh really interesting what's going on here so the other the other frame of it that you know as a literature nerd um, that um, for me made it pretty you know there was a pretty good clue about what's going on is the use of Ulysses right this film that um, uh, Lang is directing in the movie um, is this modernist adaptation of Odysseus right the Odyssey um, but I think also you know the twentieth century Hello? started with started with the 20th century started with um james joyce's take on you on odysseus with his book ulysses um which i thought bore some interesting relations to the story in in the movie um the the i saw paul as a sort of um stephen daedalus character 
you know, sort of soul searching, wandering, kind of following along, but not really, not really capable of action. Um, and and Camille bore some Molly esque um, traits, I felt um, from from the book Ulysses. But also, you know, that there's this sort of um, this sort of body um, broad satire in Ulysses that I thought came through in some of the scenes too. I mean, Jack Palance luridly, um, you know, uh, staring at the nude actresses in his film is, uh, you know, to the, to the point of um, uh, it was ridiculous as he was making these ridiculous faces. So it was sort of, it was clearly a sort of body satire at, at points. Anyway, I thought, you know, that was an interesting way to frame this too, because Joyce, you know, took a lot of criticism for taking aim at uh, his culture uh, and again, deconstructing it in a way that, you know, not everybody was very comfortable with. Um, and, you know, um, the, the Ulysses story, right? This, this, this story of this wandering for 10 years um, makes a very interesting frame for this notion um, which I, I think is, you know, perfectly appropriate. Um, Palance is probably, you know, Palance, I thought, had a very, his character, Prokash, had a very, um, I thought, insightful take on, on the, the Odyssey that, you know, the dude didn't, just didn't want to go home. He was having, he was having an adventure. He didn't want to go home and deal with things at home. So that was, uh, you know, that was, I thought, a, a, not just pithy, but um, probably, you know, one of the more philosophical, uh, um, in, introspective comments uh, in the film. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, I got a confession. I've never yeah. read Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, well, I read so, it twice, so you know, I read one of those times for you. So, well, well, thanks for that, giving me <laughs> a okay. reading, reading assignment uh, at the start of the term. So, no, uh, no, yeah, no, no, I, I, I want to read it now. Uh, you should, so, but not, not while you're teaching, man. Oh, maybe I'll just read it to my students. I'm sure I'll get great teaching reviews for that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, that you, the Ulysses arc to me is really interesting. And I must admit, I had a complete blind spot to the connection to Joyce. So that was really cool for you to point that out. Um, I could be totally off base, but it, it um, seemed to me that it, there was a connection. And I think Joyce did to literature what um, what um, uh, Godard does to film uh, in sort of tearing it apart and sort of putting it back together in a way that is, um, you know, making a statement. Yeah, that's uh, well, I took the Ulysses thing a bit in a different direction. Tell me. Yeah, tell me. Um, okay, well, like, first of all, uh, it is kind of it is mentioned in um, uh, Moravia's novel. Uh, so and uh, but Godard had no real fidelity to that novel, like, the names of all the characters are changed. Um, where I took it was, okay, it was just an epic poem. Uh, now, here's what I thought, I guess the way into this is Lang's remark about the, how the Odyssey is, Lang's reading of it, where he says, look, it, it was a unified world, essentially, the, the world of epic poetry, uh, where gods and men and humans not just men gods and humans walked together on the earth there was no crisis of faith going on there and uh there was very little interiority uh to any of the characters um now that reading or that analysis of what a lyric poem and the odyssey is a lyric poem uh that lang says that's cribbed exactly from uh, Lukash, uh, from Georgi Lukash's uh, novel or uh, book, The Theory of a Novel, um, where like the first few chapters of that are entirely the state, the statement that's yeah. the novel and the lyric poem is presents a fundamental unity. Um, 
And it's interesting for me that that take on what the Odyssey is. Okay. Glee's character and Lang this is when they're in Capri and uh, Lang sits there and says, look at the Odyssey is not about man's fundamental neurosis. That's a modern interpretation. Just his tune at some point um, shortly thereafter. I think that was what Godard was really toying around with with Ulysses uh, and but I do think yeah and uh, Palance's reading of uh, Ulysses maybe he was lost uh, or maybe he just didn't like his wife um, yeah like it is appealing to um, Michael Piccoli's character but um, I don't think uh that was what uh, Lang thought it was. But I do think there is this strange nexus where uh, Camille and Michael uh, and Pickle and uh, Paul Javal's Paul Javal uh, are surrogates, are illustrations of you and Penelope. Uh, have to check out more of the I'm going to have to check out Joyce's text it's really unforgivable that at my point in life I haven't read that I got to get on that it you know it's a it's a novel you have to read at some point but um it it's it's just uh it can be a chore um I took two courses in college so that I would read it um and uh, that's that's probably the only thing that made me read it but I'm I'm very glad I did it is a. It is. The, I. Th- I think one of the first sort of postmodern novels, and it it, it um, has a lot to say about the art form of of storytelling. Um, I just want to comment that we're still getting a bit of the um, a- audio uh, drop off, um, and I I'm not. I still can't figure out what it what is causing it. So, bear with us. It's it's getting better, but uh, we're going to continue to work on that and um, uh, make sure that we can deliver these and pristine audio form. Um, I'm, I'm going to suggest we just keep going uh, and not take a break. Um, I'm break. Yeah, let's go. Let's, let's do it. And, and, and now, if you don't mind, can we talk a bit about the, um, the cinema, the, the cinematography and um, technical aspects? Because um, you can't start watching this film and not notice right away that um, he's doing um, some very novel things with the celluloid. Um, and of course he's working with uh, cinemascope and that gives him a, a lot to play with. Um, Lang makes a very interesting comment about cinemasco- cinemascope, um, criticizing it, right. As he's making his, his film. Uh, do you recall that? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I do recall that moment where he's like, yeah, I don't like it. And, but <laughs> yeah, like he says it's for snakes and funerals. Or right. Like yeah. That. <laughs> that was, it's like, and I'm still not sure why snakes. Uh, well, well, they're maybe. you know they they can stretch across the screen, and so do funerals, I suppose. But um, yeah, know. okay. Like it, 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 it sort of when I heard it, it jarred me. I was like, well, that's a that's a one off. Uh, I'm I get he does, but I'm not sure about the reference there. So it was cool, yeah. <laughs> but um, also you know in that first scene, which is. I have to say, um, Godard, even if if um, Bardot wasn't his first choice, he makes the most of that choice. Um, it, focusing the camera on her body um, as often as he can. Um, she is just sumptuous on that screen. And he... he uh, draws our attention to it right from the very first scene um, as they're lying naked in bed. Um, but there's a, something weird that happens there. Did, and I, and I notice it because it's, you know, it's a technicolor thing, right? The technicolor process involves shooting on three different pieces of celluloid in the, in the basic colors and then putting them back together to form the, the final print. Right. 
Yeah. And so that's a, he, he cuts in the red print and the blue print and then the, you know, the, I think the yellow print and, and we get, and then we get it put together. So he's, he's sort of literally assembling the, the color tapestry of the film in front of our eyes in that scene in the bed. That's, that's what I took it to be in it. And that was, you know, the scene after, I think it was right after where we see the camera filming the translator. What's her name? Um, uh, uh, Francesca is her name in the film. Right. Yeah. Right. As, as she's walking uh, down this, down this um, movie studio set. So there's a couple of things right off the bat that are just, you know, showing us more than we should see in, in the usual case of cinema. Yeah, I thought that, well, that first scene, there's a, well, uh, after the prologue, the, the nude scene, the infamous nude scene, uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, my reading, like, first off, um, Godard didn't want that scene and didn't want that sequence in the movie. I, I wasn't. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, like, uh, he was basically, okay, they finally got Bardo. Uh, she signed on to the film, and then... Uh, the producers are like, we need uh, Bardo. Uh, we need to see her naked because Bardo is a symbol. That's she is. That's how we're going to get uh, the in the cinema to see Bardo naked. And Goddard's like, oh, for for why? You know, first <laughs> of all, it makes he Goddard says, look, it it makes no it makes no impact on the story whatsoever it's totally extraneous to the story uh to have uh them sitting in bed well at first he wanted them more than sitting in bed he wanted them more actively involved with each other's anatomy I see. Um, and uh Godard's like that makes no story uh where would it fit in are we going to put it in and um, the, like, are we going to put it in midway through where the marriage has failed? Are we going to put it at the very ending where Bardo is dead? It makes no sense. To, right. You know, Bardo's character no, no, <laughs> uh, is dead. It makes no sense here or here. So we're going to put it right at the start. And then and we're going to mess it up by doing this weird cinema stuff. Do you think that's what was going on? Yeah, I think he is in some not so subtle ways. Uh, raising his middle finger very proudly to the to the producers. He's like, look, okay. Um, yeah, okay, you want Bardo naked? It's going to be in the first five minutes of the movie. I'm going to show her in <laughs> what is clearly artificial lighting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am doing this specifically because you asked. Interesting. Af okay. af afterwards, however, though, like in the interviews subsequently, Godard's like, yeah, I didn't want that film in there. I didn't want that scene in there. Bardot played it brilliantly. She had no problems with it. Um, and after seeing it, I demanded that it be kept in the film okay. uh, because it was so beautiful. And this is where your remarks about uh, the CinemaScope, the three colors of CinemaScope, I think this is precisely uh, where this plays in. Uh, Godard knew what he was doing, and he's like, "This works. In, this makes everybody happy, including me. I'm showing what cinema does. The producers are getting their nude scene of Bardot. Uh, she looks beautiful, and I am showing the artificiality of this art form. The very thing that uh, Andre Bazan uh, when or the narrator uh, quoting uh, Andre Bazan uh, said, like literally the scene before. So I thought it right. was fascinating that, that editing technique. Uh, so he, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, I also thought like, you know, these little mini montages of mm -hmm. uh, when uh, Paul is uh, thinking about the marriage that he had. And there's just all these shots of, uh, Camille uh, doing right. various things and I thought that was really interesting because first of all what does it do for the story 
inferiority. You know, and this is uh, yeah. some, this is like something that cinema and novels can do, but was wholly absent from uh, lyric poetry, particularly the Odyssey. You know, like you read you read that in any of its translations, and you're not having Ulysses or Odysseus sitting there going, "Ah, oh, yes, well, I'm lost, and here's mm-hmm. why I'm lost." You know, it sucks. No, he's sitting there, and it's just action, action, action. You know, uh, and I thought that Godard was really showing off what the capacities of this art form. Yeah, uh, he loves film. Yeah, he just loves it, and and he's a big influence on Tarantino, who also loves film, and 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 I think in making films also likes to point out just exactly how they are the superior art form, how they're able to do things that other art forms can't do. Right. It's the truth. 24 frame, 24 frames a second or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, and also like speaking of the editing or this film, it, it's staggeringly beautiful. Yeah. Like the, the shots, the whole sequence in, um, uh, in uh, the producer's garden, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost silent and it's just shot after shot after shot of Bardo looking like Bardo. Right. And it, it is just, and then with uh, the music in the background, it's like, oh, it's as close as to the sublime as you get in a film in 1963. So, uh, so he uses also a sort a, a musical light motif that um, repeats over and over again, like an M, but in a in a you know dramatic and and not you know frightening way. Um, that that music swells up at just the right moment to bring up you know to to you know manipulate your emotions um, as you're eating up those beautiful visuals. Just I think um, taking full advantage of the of the medium. Uh, yes, like, like just well, shot after shot was was pure brilliance. Really celebrating what the camera can do. It like the colors. It's like here is the full range of the visual. Uh, well, yeah, humans can perceive yeah. of it. And I want to point out after this film. Godard uses that technique again in uh, Pierre the Clown, uh, really celebrate, and The Weeknd, um, really celebrating color. It's so beautiful. Uh, the, the shots, again, of Bardo in uh, Jack uh, Pound's. Uh, Prokash's uh, garden were just sublime as well. Yeah. I thought another interesting sequence, well, breathtaking sequence, was uh, them going up and down the steps in Capri. These overhead shots, uh, which were just amazing. I, I thought, yeah. Everything. Yeah, let's, let's get to that. But I wanted to talk about, so before we get to that, because that Capri... Yeah scene the you know the denouement of the movie is um beautifully shot and framed and everything is just um as i say i keep using the word sumptuous but that's what it was um let's talk a bit about the apartment because that's a protracted sequence oh yeah that lasts like uh for from like 37 to eight yeah it's like a parlor drama, right? It's all in this one room, that whole sequence. And it's, and it's the, and it's the, um, the talking about this dancing around what had happened um, that led her to this contempt. Um, and it's, it's hard to film a whole sequence like that. And the spare is not a very um, adorned apartment. It's, it's new. They've, they furnished it sparsely. There are just a few flourishes in it, like the statue, uh, which obviously plays a big role. Um, and um, 
he does some interesting things I wanted to talk about, if you don't mind. Um, like, for instance, this panning back and forth as they talk instead of cut shots. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a tricky technique when you're doing dialogue and you've got to, because you're not always going to be on the person who's talking. Yeah, that that was uh, brilliant. I, that whole thing where uh, what I thought was amazing about the the lamp in the middle of them shows that they're clearly into they are inhabiting different worlds mm-hmm. uh, at this point. Like, and this is the the interrogation scene uh, between where characters are interrogating each other, and I thought mm-hmm. that was. Uh, fascinating also i thought this apartment uh that they were in the flat it was really small yeah it wasn't that big of a place um but it was filmed like it was a labyrinth yeah and and the weird things happen in it too right so there's yeah. this door that doesn't have a glass in it and i right yeah i kept noticing them stepping through the window sometimes opening it sometimes doing both and that was, yeah. So in the Odyssey, right, there's this scene, right, with, with the labyrinth. And that's important. Uh, you know, the navigating out of this labyrinth, out of this maze, um, which has a great deal of significance. And, and I think he pulls it off interestingly with this. I can only think of it as choreography in the, in the apartment scene. Yes. Yeah. And for the characters or characters like they change identities in this apartment scene like uh bardo yeah. does it very deliberately or yeah. very obvious donning the wig right uh, like she okay she's no longer a blonde she's a brunette now mm-hmm. um pickley's character paul uh does it by donning the toga uh, yeah. Or the bath towel uh, that is now a toga it clearly indicates that he is Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, interestingly enough, he um, assembled his hat into an identical hat near the end of the, <laughs> this uh, sequence. Uh, other things that go on here is uh, oh, there's one more that I, but it just escaped me. Oh, the mirror. Uh, again, the, yeah. the, like me, when I'm looking at, I'm always looking for mirrors because to me, that's where things change and that's where things occur. Like, and Bardot, uh, her character, Camille, she, she dons the black wig. She looks to the mirror and what does she see there? She sees a reflection. She sees a simulacra of herself. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, this is like, this is exactly what cinema does. It doesn't show us, at least according to Bazan, it doesn't show us reality. It shows us an image of reality that we want to see. It shows us not a degraded copy, like Plato said, but it shows us something that is not in tune with reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, and then, shortly after that, when she's po- uh, Camille is posing in front of the mirror, looking at herself, she does something remarkable. She goes into the bathroom and she sits on the toilet, has a cigarette, and she starts thinking. Uh, and this is Bardot wearing the black wig, playing against her image as a sex symbol. Mm-hmm. She is critiquing the very movie. <laughs> Yeah. Her very identity in this movie and her identity in the real world. And I thought that was brilliant. Like, she says it explicitly. And uh, uh, Piccoli's character says, yeah, stop it. And Bardo's character says, no, I'm not going to stop it. Right. <laughs> and I thought that was like, she shows, she expresses explicitly her own interiority. And then you take it to the meta level and Godard is saying, yeah, this is what cinema can do. It's so it show it gives to simulacra mm-hmm. and it, and it has these characters and these simulacra might serve as a critique of our 
reality ourselves in our reality like because again we have bardot's character sitting there saying i'm far more than a sex symbol right uh i a woman and that's yeah yeah that's the root of the contempt right because she was treated as this trade right it was a yeah this is she feels that she's been traded uh in order that paul could succeed in writing this uh this film get this contract to write this film right and 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 so she's she's rebelling it as paul should have right um, as as Godard does through the act of making this film. Yes. Uh, and it's an oh, interesting thing that uh, Paul does in this sequence. He types. Right. You know, and I thought that was just an interesting one off. Like, you know, okay, so he's typing. This is exactly what Bardot's Camille's uh, job. She reveals that at right. the end of the movie she's a she's a typist and uh jack palance's character laughs at that but this is exactly so we have paul becoming ulysses we have paul explicitly becoming adopting uh camille's job and i thought that was really interesting that was an inversion of character uh going on in this sequence i thought it was and then it's all shot in this labyrinth where weird happen (laughs) a descent into the underworld even Yeah. yeah yeah and and how do they get out so let's let's talk a little bit about that because they 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 get out of that labyrinth and it's all about whether or not he's going to go to Capri and it's this tug of war back and forth about um, whether he's going to go, they're going to go. And it's clear that he had other motivations too. Um, So there, the, something we haven't mentioned is that there was more going on between him and the, the translator. Um, Again, I've forgotten her name. Um, Uh, Yeah. Francesca. Yeah. Francesca. Right. Then, and, and, but that's, you know, that's the thing is you think it's going to be a movie about jealousy about this Francesca. Bardot could, could care less about Francesca. It's right. all about how he treated her in relation to Prokash. And, and she's the one who brings them out of that labyrinth. She's the one who insists that they, they go to Capri. Is that, is that not the case? And and so she's really, um, you know, I think I think she's the one who, who moves this along. Paul is stuck. Paul is lost, and and it's really this homecoming, right? To to Molly in, in uh, Ulysses, Penelope in Odysseus, uh, and then um, to Camille in in um, in this film, uh, that that finally gets him home uh and uh gets them out of this endless loop yeah um what was like what did you take of did paul care about paul, paul does think mill hates him has contempt for him uh is because she saw uh, camille saw paul uh flirting with francesca and uh right yeah yeah talk a bit about a bit more about that what do you think the motivations are what does paul think is going on for why camille broke up with him what is why does why camille break up with him uh could come to hate him could this been avoided being honest at all uh yeah so so my take is that um paul's a bit of an idiot about it um he doesn't read her correctly she doesn't care so much about francesca as the fact that he sent her uh her along in the sports car against her will um with with the producer as a as a 
no, as an incentive to get this contract. And that, you know, this is basically a pandering. He pandered uh, uh, to, to use um, uh, another uh, Greek uh, demigod analogy. Um, the, he, he sold her for this, this um, opportunity and, and she no longer thought of him as a man. You know, this is not what she, and she said, you're not, you're not a man. I think that was her exact words. Um, and, and that's why she became, she found him contemptible. Um, and, and, and I think that she was utterly honest about that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Like, uh, pandering, he, he, fighter. Right. Like, and, and like, the white job, at least according to uh, the as the oh, so they could pay doctor. for the apartment, right? It's all about money for him. Yeah, yeah. And why did he? And why did he want to pay for the apartment? According to uh, like his, what he says is, I would much rather be uh, a novelist or a playwright, but doing the for you, for right? That you, Camille, want right. because you said when when in that shot walking up to the apartment, oh, it's better than a hotel, and Paul takes that as the absolute truth. Whereas I think for Camille, that is literally a throwaway line, and she is still pissed off at him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, she's like, yeah, it's an apartment. It's better than a hotel, obviously. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, home is better than a hotel. Like, so Prokash is, then why does she go with Prokash? Prokash, who is a, who's a, a jerk, he's shallow. He's, he's this, you know, typical sort of Hollywood producer caricature. But he's also totally honest about it, you know? And that is the, again, that is the root of her contempt is the dishonesty that right? Paul, Paul displays. Yeah, like she's very clear. She cannot lies. Uh, right. Like <laughs> time divorce comes up, the word divorce is mentioned in this film. And it's, it's even more explicit in the novel. Yes, like she cannot stand lies. And Paul is lying to himself about everything and this flirtation with Francesca um, because I think I honestly think uh, Camille's character doesn't care. She, she looks at Francesca yeah. and she's like, if, if he's uh, flirting with that, when he's got, he's. Yeah. There's other things going on. Definitely. Right. Uh, yes. Hang on. She hates the lies and the lies Paul is telling to himself. And this is comes back to the central lie of cinema. Mm -hmm. Cinema is itself. Cinema is a capitalist art form. Right. Uh, it takes millions, hundreds of millions, if you're making a Marvel movie, to make a movie these days. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the producers are the ones who call the shots. They give they give notes to Fritz Lang. Right, you know, and uh, you know, yeah. like they tell Fritz Lang how to make a movie, uh, and they tell Godard how to make a movie. It's absurd, and but so, but capitalism says yes, we are telling the lie that becomes the reality, and what is going on here in this film, I think, is Godard is saying, yeah, through Camille, that lie is the disgusting lie. It's the lie that destroys humans and me. So, uh, uh, yeah, like that to me is really fascinating. Like it's no, it's no longer the noble lie. On artwork. Well, yeah, but, and I... some, but is fine, at least in the Republic, as long as it tells the right truth about the gods. Uh, it, re it reveals something about the forms that is educational. Right. Um, and uh, here we got <laughs> this statement. It's like, yes, this show, 
repeatedly it said this shows gods this shows gods discussing man and ulysses and what is this showing utterly disgusting it is showing how a person will be corrupt and become detestable and i thought that was a pretty profound statement <laughs> it, it is but you know let me just say i have a real problem with the ending um and it i had the same problem with the ending of thelma and louise um <laughs> you, you build up so at the end of it right we're, we're left with contempt for paul as well um and uh sympathy for camille um, and I, I don't have any, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm, I suppose I'm, I feel revulsion for Prokash, but it's nothing new because it starts that way, um, as well. And, and to have them die and for Paul to go on seems to me to be a, um, and I, I suppose maybe there's a message here from Godard, um, that, um, you know, this is, this is also what cinema does. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is a lie in itself, but it's also telling this truth and the truth is sort of uh, horrible and um, sad. And ultimately, um, you know, the Hollywood ending doesn't exist. So yeah, I have, a, I, I still have trouble with it that, that the way it ends um, causes me discomfort in a way that I, 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 you know, I don't, I can't reconcile. Huh. Yeah. Uh, like I, I didn't, I didn't mind the end. Uh, I guess, um, like, you know, Aristotle was like, okay, what makes an art form an art form? It has a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, Aristotle was talking about lyric poetry, but he was talking about any any sort of art form with a duration and with Camille and Pokash's uh, death at the end. Okay. This is closure. Uh, this is what makes it a movie. It's a movie where the people die. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's no coming back from get it from team. Semi uh, um, is uh, what, and then like, does Paul survive? Well, maybe like, yeah. I like, you know, not like in the novel uh contempt uh it's very explicit that paul his greatest fear is uh losing uh, and i think that might have been it might be a throwaway in the movie but like you know his whole identity and what he does he said least is fixated on making Camille happy and maintaining that marriage. Uh, he might be, he is utterly wrong about that. Um, but so the marriage ends, it ends irrevocably. Uh, she's dead. What's left of Paul afterwards? Well, he just wanders off into the wilderness having lost his wife uh, for a movie that will now never get made. Like, right. you know, <laughs> the production company Triumph Films is on its last legs. And yeah. uh, when Pokash is dead, you, this thing is going into is going into the bins and it's just it'll never it'll never see the light of day. I, I thought so, and, and then Lang basically is unscathed by all of this. Oh, yeah. He sort of floats above it. He's kind of the. He is a god-like figure who can yeah. float above all this and just absorb it and take it in and have sort of, you know, uh, guru-esque uh, things to say every now and then and be completely fine. Yeah, like he, Lang does say, like, I, like one, Lang says, I hate producers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there's the real implication he's going to make whatever movie he feels like making <laughs> regardless of what the script says yeah. um, he's just going to 
it's like, yeah, I'm shooting, I'm shooting, I'm still going to shoot statues here, you know, (laughs) that's what this is going to be, you know, Uh, so one has to wonder, like, within the film, what actually ended up in the can for that, like, yeah, I'm curious, yeah, it's Lang just doing what wanted to do the whole time and uh you know and then he it was interesting and you get a little in the dialogue where like lang's saying in his first meeting of camille uh camille's saying yeah you know uh i loved this western (laughs) and like (laughs) like yeah i i hated that i i was my favorite sam and now that western that it was made was uh I forget the name of it, but it was a real film and it was yeah. at the behest of the studio just to fulfill yeah. some studio obligations. And Lang's like, yeah, it, it doesn't matter to me, you know? <laughs> it, was just, <laughs> it was fulfilling an obligation because, you know, I'm, I'm tired of like jumping between countries, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I so so that... this is a, I think this is a really important film and it has a lot to say and it, it, it does, um, it, it paves the way for a lot of innovation that comes with the French new wave and, and in the sixties and then in the seventies when the Hollywood uh, or, you know, anti-Hollywood uh, directors were starting to, um, you know, uh, take off from the, the, these French directors and, and do their own thing. Um, so I'm I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. I probably could have talked about it with you for another hour, but I think there, you know, basically, I think there's a limit to how long we can make these episodes. Uh, maybe we'll do a two part episode at some point. Um, but I'm I'm now I'm I'm eager to see what what our next uh, film will be and um, how you um, got it from here. Okay. Well, yeah, first of all, I want to thank you for this conversation, David. It's been wonderful talking about uh, contempt. And now I was deciding, trying to decide what movie was next. And I had two contenders, uh, but ultimately picked, I'll just say it without any more buildup, uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half. It's also a film about a film. uh, And... uh, it was shot in the same year, uh, okay. it was, uh, 1963 uh, in Italy. Uh, so that's why I picked it. Um, yeah, that's Great. what I want to talk Excellent. about. Excellent. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm eager to talk about it. It's it's one I've watched and, and um, have a lot, to, a lot to think about. I'll watch it again. And uh, again, most of these films I never thought about in the context of philosophical stuff. So having this opportunity to to rewatch them um, and, uh, you know, flex our philosophical chops together about them as is really a delight. So I appreciate it uh, again. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that episode. And um, I hope our listeners uh, subscribe and like this podcast and uh, hopefully send in some messages now and then we have a big Facebook group. We now how many members now, I think. I over, well over 150 i think uh great so, um, okay yeah i'm excited about how that's taking off and as soon as i mandate all my students to uh pay attention <laughs> to the uh, sign up for it you know like you can no longer mandate that they wear masks you mandate <laughs> that they show up for a podcast <laughs> uh, i think that's i think that's perfectly ethical no problem there oh yeah all yeah, right you know <laughs> yeah all right, Rob, I'm looking forward to the next one. And uh, everybody go watch Eight and a Half. If you need to find a way to watch it, uh, maybe you'll join our Facebook group um, and uh, we'll give you some tips. We'll see you next time. Okay. Yeah, see you All next right. time. And uh, it was wonderful talking to you, David, and uh, talking about Godard. And I'm, I'm so thankful we actually are getting an audience for this and people are listening to this. This is really cool. It's awesome. And, and thank you all for listening. And, and I'll see you. I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Rob. Okay. Talk to you soon, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.